Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Soul of Business with Blaine Bartlett. I am your host, Blaine Bartlett. Um, folks, we've got an interesting show today, and I say interesting from a very uh, specific point of view. Um, Stephen Bloom, who's the CEO of Miller Ingenuity, uh, is running a company that's over 75 years old, and it's a company that is uh, primarily focused and I say primarily focused because there's a lot of a lot of expansion to this primarily focused uh, epitaph that I'm putting in place here in, in the railroad industry. And railroads have been around since the you know literally early 1700s, thereabouts. You know they've been around a long time. So what Miller Ingenuity is 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 known for right now, they are re- internationally recognized um, uh, for. Uh, the work that they do in high technology products that save lives and preserves the environment. Now, that's an interesting mix in an industry as old as railroads. And, and Stephen is also kind of unique in the fact that uh, not only does he you know, lead the organization, but he's also a recognized expert on leading change in business transformation. And it's the business transformation piece that I was very interested in and why I wanted to have him on the show. Uh, so, Stephen, um, welcome, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Blaine. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let, let's uh, just kind of jump into this with both feet. You know, talking about railroads. When, when I'm talking about the soul of business for something that's been around as long as railroads, and I'm going to just be generic with that. What comes to mind for you? Because I mean, again, Miller Ingenuity, 75 years old. Yeah, you are relevant. I mean, and that would be one word that I would you know want to key on in your space and more than just in your space, the industry, you, you lead an aspect of that industry in a way that is really, really kind of unique. So what does the soul of business evoke for you and why, why would a leader want to pay attention to it? You know, there are, uh, let me start out with, there are a lot of soulless businesses <laughs> out there today. Yes. Uh, and, you know, if you want to uh, motivate and engage your employees, there has to be a reason why they would want to be motivated and engaged. And people who are working for a soulless business, they don't have anything to get engaged about. And when I think about the soul of a business, it's to, I think of Blaine, the, the very essence of what, what, what drives it forward, what its foundational values are, and, and why it exists the way that it does, and why should it continue to exist tomorrow. And if there is no soul in the business, there is no, you know, people can leave whenever they want. People can, uh, you know, you hear the, the, the latest catchphrase, what is it called? Uh, quiet quitting now. Quiet uh, quitting. And, and I love quiet quitting because you know what, that, you know this, that's nothing new. It's been around a long time, but until the media named it, now it's kind of a big thing. Yep. Well, so I think of the solo, but people won't leave a 
company that has a soul. Uh, they will leave a company that is soulless because it's just you're punching a ticket. I, I'm not that engaged and I'll leave when I feel like it. So I think the soul is, is, is very integral to, to, to ha have a successful business. You know, it's yeah, Gallup has done this survey for 20 plus years that I'm aware of looking at employee engagement. And, and that number has not moved in the you know, regular listeners to the show have heard me cite this statistic more than once. But you know, roughly speaking, 85, 87 percent of global workforce uh, is disengaged from the work they're doing in, in a meaningful way. They're disengaged meaningfully. Yeah, yeah. The quiet quitting piece. Yeah. Um, you know, they're showing up punching the clock, but they're not really there. Um, you know, you said something just a moment ago that um, I, I really had not thought of in the way that you positioned it. Why should we exist tomorrow? I know why we exist today, but this goes to the question of relevance and, and actually how do I leverage my soul and my organization's soul? Why should we exist tomorrow? And one of the things that you, you know, uh, one, of, one of your last books, uh, Metamorphosis from Rust Belt to High Technology in the 21st Century World, one of the things that you talk about has to do with what happened during the, uh, the, the, the pandemic, you know, that, that three-year gap here, mm -hmm. 19 to 22, where we are today, yeah. um, wiped out thousands of businesses. And in the... Um, publicity bio that I got for you preparatory to uh, you know, getting ready for this. You know, one of the things it says here, the fault doesn't lie with the pandemic. It lies with the businesses that were not strong enough to survive the adversity of the pandemic. Yeah. It also lies with the CEO and the senior leadership who, sh who failed basically their job. Yeah. So what are you talking about there? Because I, by the way, I happen to agree with you completely. Uh -huh. And I think it speaks directly to this question of why should it exist tomorrow? Well, you can um, name a lot of industries and a lot of businesses that uh, were dying before the pandemic. They just didn't know it yeah, or they didn't recognize it. You know, I was just a friend of mine was talking to me this morning about uh, one of the foundational malls not far from here. That's a ghost town now. Well, yeah. foundational malls have been dying for years and years and years and years. Uh, they either didn't recognize it or didn't choose to deal with it. And so the pandemic just sort of speeded them to the grave. And when I look at what companies that uh, went into the pandemic uh, that had strong balance sheets, they all came out on the other side with strong balance sheets. Mine happened to be one of them. We had a strong balance sheet to, to begin with. And then you look at the companies that had uh, didn't survive that. Now, I can't know this for certain, of course. But uh, my suspicion is every company that did not survive the pandemic, I don't care what it was, hospitality was a little harder than manufacturing in, in most cases uh, to survive. The ones that didn't have a strong balance sheet just didn't survive. And the, the lesson that I teach CEOs is, you know, the next pandemic may not be a medical pandemic. It may be a, a competitor that makes a move you didn't contemplate. We've, if we've learned anything during the pandemic, Blaine, it's the government can do any damn thing they want anytime they want. And so the government can decide to uh, overregulate your industry. The government can decide to overtax your industry. The government can just decide to like shut your industry down. And so I tell CEOs all the time, you really have to be prepared for it. You have to assume there's another crisis coming and you have to prepare for it. The way to prepare for it primarily in short is to have a strong balance sheet. Yeah. 
So you know, that kind of leads to another question here. You know, steps that can be taken to you know, in, you know, not only avoid impending disaster, but to grow and prosper. I mean, stuff is going to happen out there. That That's out of my control. Pandemic is out of my control. Government action out of my control. Most things are. What's yep. in my control? What's in my right. control? Right. As an entrepreneur, let alone a CEO of a larger enterprise organization. Well, you know, uh, I was leading uh, like a CEO mind group a number of years ago, and one of my uh, one of my members said, "At some point in time, we have to talk about the government." I said, "No, we're not going to talk about the government in this forum, because we can't do anything about the government effectively. We can't, you know, uh, influence that in one way or another." So let's talk about, to your point, let's talk about things that we can't control. And the primary thing that people leading organizations, this is uh, one of the uh, tenets of uh, why you should exist tomorrow. You have to look at tomorrow. Most, I shouldn't say most CEOs, a lot of CEOs only look at what's happening today. Okay, things right. are good today. Margins are okay today. Yeah, a little competition out there. I sort of don't like that, but it's it's all right, you know. And uh, they assume that tomorrow is going to be just like today. Tomorrow is not going to be just like today uh, in anybody's book. And you have to, you know, like Wayne Gretzky used to say, he always skates to where the puck is going to be. He doesn't, and, and that's what a CEO has to do. And when I, my company's been around for 75 years, I've been leading at the last 25 of it. We've been through pandemics, recessions, uh, depressions in the, in the 50s. And the reason that we're still alive and still thriving is because we're always looking ahead to what has to be done. Case in point, we're now into the safety space. Uh, safety and uh, uh, preservation of natural resources space. Right. In addition to, like, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So I still have my core products that generate margins while my emerging products are uh, are emerging. And when I and when I entered the safety space a, n- a number of years ago, it was very expensive and uh, very very complicated. And my board looked at me and said. Why would you want to spend all this money and on that? Well, we got good margins, we got good products. I said, look, I can tell you, when you look at the the growth curve of the, our current products, they they only go one place. Yeah, because you know, the industry doesn't get bigger, the rail industry does not get bigger, so the growth <laughs> of our products can only go down. So we have to uh, plan for the future. As as painful as, and as controversial as that as that can be, and I and I would say one thing to CEOs. It's going to be painful and it's going to be controversial. So you have to strap in there, put on your flak, flak vest and, and get ready for that. Because to convince all your constituents to make those kind of moves, you got to be part cheerleader, part salesman and part bully. So you have to be ready yeah. for all of those. But that's the way to uh, that answers the question of why should I exist tomorrow? Because identify an area of need, of great need. Uh, and I can talk about the safety aspect in a minute. Uh, and then you you move toward that need. If that there is no need out there, you don't have any reason to exist. Exactly. And yeah. eventually that catches up to you. Yeah, Marshall Goldsmith, uh, his aphorism of what got you here won't get you there. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Essentially. Same um, thing. Yeah, this is same thing. So the idea of, um, I mean, uh, the, the, this whole notion of, the CEO, a lot of the CEOs that I coach and work with see themselves as operators. Um, and again, I'm, I'm talking here specifically 
Yeah, mid-sized companies, you know, or smaller companies, actually, a you know, $20 million you know, revenue cap, that sort of a thing here, which it's not surprising. You know, they kind of grew up with the business and, you know, so they, they've got their hands and their fingers into a lot of things here. One of the things that I'm hearing embedded in what you're speaking to, Steve, is being able to get my head up. Right. Yeah, looking out on the horizon. You know, yep. what What's emerging out there yeah. uh, that my board may not be aware of, that certainly my people may not be aware of because yep. they're in the trenches doing 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 the do yep. and um, yep. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you've noticed in your own experience as CEO that has lent itself to your ability to actually get your head up? Yeah. What, 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 what did you have to learn in order to do that? Well, I've had a lot of bad experiences in my career. <laughs> a few good that, ones. That, yeah, that, that's a good teacher. A few good ones or we wouldn't be talking. Uh, and I learned from a lot of the uh, guys I used to work for that made the mistake you just talked about. They're uh, deep into the operation. They don't belong deep into the operation. And I saw the failure of that because they, they, they couldn't see what was right in front of their faces. Thank you. And I have a good friend of mine. I have a joint venture in Brazil and he's the CEO of the joint venture. And he is all over his operation. He's, you know, into the manufacturing, he's into the development. And I keep telling him all the time, you got to get out. You don't belong there. And when, when you're doing there, you can't, to your point, get your head up and see what, what's ahead of you. So that that's one reason why uh, I, uh, I have the ability to see ahead. The other is I hate detail. I'm just not really good at detail. And I know it, right? I just hate detail. You give me something yeah. to read, Blaine, and I'll skim through it in about 13 seconds. I don't care. Uh, you know, and I, I have no, I get bored easily, right? Uh, and so I make sure that I shore up that weakness by people who work for me who are into the detail. Give an example. My senior leadership team, I don't, I don't get into their areas. I have no idea what they're doing. I don't want to know what they're doing. And I meet with them about once a month and we take a, a 30,000 foot view of the business. Okay. Yeah. I do a deep dive once a month. What are the margins like? What are the threats like? What are this like? And then I get out of it and I let those guys do their thing. And if they're not able to do their thing, you get the wrong guys. And, yeah. uh, and I think that's really essential. You have to, I guess it helps that I'm bored with detail. I just am. I'm not good at that, uh, but I'm smart enough to know I got to have people who work for me who are good at that. Yeah. You know, partly of what you're beginning to speak to, or at least the uh, referencing here has to do with attitude, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a leadership attitude. In your experience, what are some of the, you know, in addition to what we've just been looking at, attitudes that can and universally doom a company? Yeah, leadership attitude. Oh, oh boy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, there's a lot of them. Yes, I know. You've been in the trenches for 25 years here. Yeah. So. so you know what they are. Uh, you know, uh, throughout my 40-year career, I was uh, in every part of the an organization. I was in all of it. Lower levels, middle levels, senior levels, manufacturing, marketing, sales. So I, I've been around in enough organizations as I expect you have. So I, I, can, I can see this coming a mile away. I tell CEOs all the time, you don't have a problem that I haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a matter of fact, you don't have a problem that I haven't already solved before. And one of the attitudes that I find most prevalent with the people that I talk to is uh, it's, it's like a, it's, it's a, not an attitude of deep, deep, deep belief and engagement and uh, excitement for the, for the future of the company. 
I mean, you got to live, eat and breathe. If you're going to be a CEO, you know, I think about, I know you do too. I think about this. If I'm not thinking about this company or sitting in a meeting about this company, it's eight, nine, 10 o'clock at night. I'm looking at emails because we do business all over the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, I eat, sleep and breathe this company. And those that don't, because CEOs can be clock punchers too. Yes. Those that don't, uh, that's the, that's the worst kind of attitude. And you know, what really irks me, Blaine is, uh, they're, they're failing everybody, not only their shareholders, but their employees, people who the entire organization depends on the CEO to do the right thing. Now, will the CEO do the right thing all the time? No, no nobody could. But if you got a CEO is sort of like there just because he's there, uh, that's probably the worst kind of attitude a company can have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it trickles down. There's no yeah. question about that. So if we're yeah. looking at engagement, yeah, People going see back that. all the way back to Gallup. Yeah. Uh, then assuming that there's nobody out there but me, you know, and my external world is a reflection of my internal world. That I mean, it's, it's manifested out there. So yeah. those of you that are listening, if you're wrestling with employee engagement, an invitation would be to look at where are you not engaged? You know, yeah. What is it the organization's up to? You know, what are you? You know, where, you look at those they, those Gallup polls. They haven't changed at all. They're the same. No, but yeah, 20 they, years they, they haven't changed. 20 years they haven't moved. No, and, and now it's a, a phenomenon. Uh, the other th uh, poll that uh, Harvard did a study once, this is about 20 or 25 years ago, on why aren't people engaged, okay? Mm -hmm. Number one reason that people weren't engaged is because they didn't feel respected. And they ranked. They said, tell me what's most important to you, respect or money? Money was way down here. Respect yeah. was number one. And how inexpensive is it to give people respect yeah it costs yeah. nothing no it costs nothing but i'll tell you what um i don't want to digress too much on this point but respect is so important that it's not enough for the leadership to have respect of their employees that that's a given that's table space everybody has to have respect for everybody else and if they don't because when people disrespect each other how can they function effectively as a team yeah so the ceo has to insist uh, uh, and you can't just give it lip service. lip service. If people aren't, I, I, I had an organization once I, I started firing people because of the disrespect they displayed with each other. I gave them warning. I told them, you know, uh, and it's just, it's not the kind of thing that CEO can just say, you have to have it. He has to put some teeth in that. Otherwise people just think it's another edict on high. It'll go away if they ignore it. Yeah. Artwork on the wall. Yeah. We respect, right. we, we respect our people. And then, yeah, I see this. I do a lot of work in the uh, uh, hospital space, in the med, you know, the healthcare space, and you know, being in the OR, and I'll see surgeons just you know reaming uh, a charge nurse, or you know, uh, and it's kind of like, what's going on here? This is not this is not acceptable behavior. No, absolutely and, not. No, yeah. it's horrible. That's horrible. So we're going to take a real quick break here. When we come back, there's something that I want to you know, go into a little bit more granular uh, discussion around, and it has to do with Business, silent business killers, something that you've uh, written about, talk about, and uh, I think it's going to be relevant to what we're looking at in terms of why should we exist tomorrow? What, yeah, you know, I'm going to give you a little bit of time here to get, kind of chew on that. So when we come back, we'll explore that a little bit. All right. But, you know, case folks, we're listening uh, uh, to uh, yeah to Steve Blue here. Um, we're going to take a real quick break. The idea of relevance is what we're looking at here and we want to explore. So what keeps you relevant? What keeps you relevant as the world around you collapses around your ears, <laughs> okay? 
We'll be right back. I want to thank you for listening. Um, I want to also invite you right now to go to blainebartlett.com. And on that site, which is my personal website, you'll see uh, services up on the top menu. I'd like you to click on Leadership Mastermind. Now, why I want you to do that is we have uh, structured a mastermind program that is very unusual and it is very powerful. And by going onto that site and clicking that link, you'll be taken to a landing page that is an invitation to join this mastermind. It's a 52 week long exploration of what it takes to be a highly effective leader in today's fast changing environment. You won't regret it. And if you've been liking what you've been listening to on these Soul of Business podcasts, how does one become a leader that can keep connection to the soul of business? That's what we look at. That's what we're about in this mastermind program. So again, go to blainebartlett.com and click on the services link. And there you'll find the link to the Leadership Mastermind program. Look forward to seeing you there. Thanks for listening to this little commercial. And now back to our show. Welcome back. Um, before Steve and I took a break, uh, I had put up on the table uh, a possibility for us to have a conversation around something that he calls the six, uh, the six silent business killers. And I'm interested in having a little conversation around this because when we look at the world today, we've got economic uncertainty, we've got inflation going on, We've got uh, political you know, things in crisis, you know, things are collapsing around our ears and all this sort of stuff, yeah. all of which are out of our control. And we still have to run a viable business. We have to uh, you know, keep things moving. Um, and part of this has to do with what, you know, why should we exist tomorrow? If the world around us is collapsing today, why should we exist tomorrow? So you know, Steve, I'd be interested, you, know, you, you, you speak about this in the talks that you give and, you, and you've, you you speak to some pretty prestigious organizations. I mean, you've been around the block for a while here. Um, yeah, CNN, CNBC, Forbes, Fortune, um, the Wall Street Journal. Uh, what are some of the uh, business killers, six silent business killers that can sneak up on us, kind of like you know, carbon monoxide that uh, yeah. you, know, you start dozing off and the next thing you know, you're not here. Yeah, you know, uh, I just did a, a keynote at Carnegie Hall in uh, June. Of this year, and actually, I was just in California a couple of weeks ago to get a, a, an award from uh, it's called an XP award from the National Academy of Expert Speakers and, and Authors, <clears throat> and that's one of the issues that I talked about uh, was the silent business killers. You know, when you say when you say, "God, we got economic uncertainty, we've got political uncertainty, we've got geo." Uh, physical uh, un, uh, insecurity. Well, dial back twenty years, we had that then. Now, maybe some of it wasn't quite as bad. Maybe it was, you know, but still dial back 40 years ahead that then. So, you know, to your point, that's noise level that you have to, you have mm -hmm. to ignore as a CEO. Uh, what, ki what kills businesses and what I wrote about, I think it was in my first book, Silent Business Killers. The, the worst one uh, is when, when a CEO looks at his numbers and they've deteriorated a little bit ever so slightly. They've gotten a little soft, okay? And he concludes, because usually the sales guy will tell him, boss, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. You know, next month, the numbers will be better. 
that's the worst. Uh, that's an insidious killer when you we, when your numbers start to get soft. Uh, well, I'll give you an example. I look at order entry every single day, every single day. Now that's that seems contradictory to a guy who doesn't pay attention to the the uh, details. details. But that is what that's the lifeblood of the business. And every now and again, the system doesn't deliver me the order report when it's supposed to. And then I'm all over that. I'm sending out emails to my sales guy. Where the hell is my orders report? Uh, and so that's that's my early warning system. I know if that gets soft about three days in a row, that's all it takes uh, mm-hmm. in our business and with our backlog, three or four days in a row, I know something's up. Then I start asking questions. But when CEOs don't pay great attention to the orders and CEOs don't, the CEOs assume a softening is going to sort itself out later on. That is probably the biggest silent business killer I see because when when it when it becomes completely apparent that it's life threatening, it's too late to do anything about it. Yeah, you know that's a. I want to just kind of hold on that point here because I think it's something that a lot of people don't pay attention to. Yeah, I, I you know, in in some of the training work I do and particularly in the consulting work I do, one of the questions I'll bring to the table is. What do you think your economic engine runs on? And that question is different than how do you make money? Yeah, you know, absolutely. And, and, and so, yeah, order entry is the metric by, you know, that's, that's the, uh, you know, your, your business runs on order entry. I mean, if yeah. that thing starts to fall aside, yeah. how many of you listening do not know what your economic engine is? How many of you have not really identified what that is? Because yeah. when it starts to wane, and you notice that something's off, if you don't know where to look, you're not going to know what to fix. Right. Is, is essentially what's going on yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I'll give you an, it's, uh, another example of that. Uh, speaking of healthcare, I'm on the board of a healthcare system, and I've been on that board for a long time, 15 maybe, and that's, that's a whole another wild. I'm glad I'm not the CEO of the healthcare. Oh, healthcare space, wow. Oh, it's horrible. It's, it's yeah. wonderful and it's horrible. Anyway, Right before the pandemic, we were all having a, a strategy meeting, the board, right? And we had docs in there, you know, and board members and all that kind of stuff. And one, one doc said, it was a general surgeon, he said, well, he asked, what's the most profitable thing we do here? Nobody could answer that. I, I'm not sure he knew the answer to that, but nobody, okay, fine, that's bad. Not horrible, but bad. And then he said, the answer, the obvious answer is uh, uh, elective general surgery. In, in our case, it was a small system of the scopes, mostly colonoscopies and all that kind of thing. He said, what would happen if some if something happened and we couldn't do colonoscopies for six months? And everybody said, including me, I was guilty too. We all said, well, that's not going to happen. What the hell? Three months later, as you know, yeah. no elective surgeries, no colonoscopies for the longest time. And so you have, as a CEO, you have to have a plan for the worst case that's one of the other silent business killers is you have to have an emergency readiness plan to go right now. In mm-hmm. a crisis, you don't have time to start figuring things out. You're under pressure. Uh, you, you, you make bad judgments. So you just have to have a, you know, a, a, a fail safe plan for what's the worst thing that can happen to us. Let's let's come on, guys. What's the worst thing to have? Well, OK, my biggest customer suddenly stops all orders. OK, can that happen? Of course it can. Uh, and, and how long can we survive if it happens and what will we do about it? 
And, and then when you get a smaller episode of something like that, it's like, okay, fine. We know exactly what we're going to do. I'll give you a perfect example. We're staring down the barrel of a uh, rail strike. Mm -hmm. And that would be bad, right? Well, okay. History would say if they have it, it might last a weekend. That'll be about it. Congress will intervene. I don't know. And so I asked my team, I said, what happens to us for every day there is a rail strike? What happens to our top line? What happens to our bottom line? What happens to our overhead structure and all that kind of stuff? So I know, so I don't panic. When it happens, I'll go, oh, now what am I going to do? I know, and I've, I've noticed my board, here's what's going to happen. And in my case, really, it's, it's a deferral of income. It's not a loss of income because what right. they buy from me, they're going to buy. They just may not buy it for a while. So I know exactly what's going to happen and, uh, and I can plan for it. And then if it happens, I could tell my people, calm down because they're looking at the news. They're worried about, are they going to get laid off and all that kind of stuff? Just <laughs> calm down. So I think that's probably the, the second most insidious silent business killer because things happen and no one prepares for it yeah then they don't don't know what to do yeah i'm, I'm reminded of you know scenario planning you know royal dutch shell you know was i think one of the only big oil firms that did the kind of scenario planning that actually predic uh, predicted the fall of the soviet union really and it, yeah and um wow. they were they had they had a scenario in place to handle the disruption to the oil flow as a consequence of what was going I'll on around. I'll be done. You don't see much of that. No, particularly in an, uh, at an enterprise level. That, yeah. Right, right. And, wow. And they were able to, I mean, you talk about pivoting. You know, that, yeah, pivot is about a plan B. And having exactly right. Yeah. If you have to develop a plan B in a crisis, it's too late. I mean, you can't, you just late. can't do it. I yeah. mean, you have to, you feel like you have to, you, the, your board will be breathing down your neck you know, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why aren't you doing it faster? And you, and you really have to, uh, you have to be able to push the board back a little bit sometimes say, hold on a minute, guys, you know, I know you're, you're out there and you're three steps removed. So I know you're concerned, but let's just not overreact or why don't you just let me handle it. Well, you bring the board up and you've mentioned the board a couple of times. One of the other things that you know, I have run into you know, just in my own business, but also in the consulting work that I do with uh, leaders around the world, is the CEO board relationship. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whose board is it? Uh, yeah. What is the role of the board? Is it uh, strategic or you know, where does where's that operational gray line? I mean, all of that mm -hmm. sort of stuff comes in. In your experience, you know, what is the, the uh, recipe, if you could, for a successful collaboration mm -hmm. between the executive and the board? Yeah. You know, uh, in a public company, uh, the, the board's role is pretty clearly defined in yes, most public companies. Is. I mean, it's well, they're not right. operational, it's strategic. And the only decisions you get to make is you approve you prove annual budget, uh, you mm -hmm. approve a strategy, and you hire or fire the CEO. That's your That's role. It. And so if you don't like what I'm doing as a CEO, you got two choices. <clears throat> in private companies, which is would be mostly what you uh, deal with, and, right. and me too, is... Uh, it's whatever the board decides it is, whatever the shareholders decide that the board's role is. Now, boards uh, can be very, uh, uh, individual board members can be really effective depending on what they've come from. You know, but a lot of them aren't necessarily business people. They got the board role because of the family ownership, right? Right, right. And so, so you can't, you cannot ever let a board 
in a, in a, especially in a private company, get their fingers down into the operation because they don't know what they're doing. Generally, yeah, some might, they some might not, and and I guarantee you, if you let them put the fingers in the operation and they screw it up, they're not going to blame themselves. They're going to blame you. <laughs> that is so true. Oh yeah. Well, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You've been around just like I have. So what I did early on in my relationship, 25 years ago with the board, was I absolutely insisted that they not do that, and uh, it was at somewhat personal peril at the beginning because they're saying, "You don't understand, kid." We hired you, you work for us, we'll tell you what we're going to say. No, you're not going to. And then over the years, uh, because things were working out pretty successfully and our numbers quadrupled, our operating income numbers quadrupled, uh, they began to believe that I sort of knew what I was talking about. And so what I, I, I have a sense now, Blaine, for what they need to know and what they don't need to know. And over the years, I've sort of conditioned them to what they can expect uh, from me. And, and uh, we've even had discussions about that. Guys, here's what I won't do. I won't buy a company. Oh, and you know, uh, and then I said, uh, we need a, 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 what is it called? Uh, limits of authority document. Limits of authority, yep. For the CEO, simple enough. And they, they, never, they never did get around to it, even though I asked them here. So, you know, basically I can't buy a company. I can't sell a company. I can't divest of a significant asset. I can't do this, but other than that, I can do anything else that's in. So you have to be at first, you have to develop trust based on results. Nothing gains trust better than results. And then you have to really clearly define. So we don't argue later on about what, what I could have done or what I should not have done. Yeah, perfect. Where can people find out more about what you're up to? And I'm not talking necessarily about the company, but I'm, you, know, you are a resource that uh, I think is very rich and any budding entrepreneur, any seasoned entrepreneur would benefit greatly from getting more access to not only you, know, you, you know, if, if and when appropriate, but mostly what it is that you bring to the table. Where, where can people find out more about you? I, I think the easiest way, Blaine, is stevenlblue.com, S-T-E-V-E-N-L-B-L-U-E.com. That'll, there's links to Miller Ingenuity, my uh, company, and, uh, uh, so they can find anything they want to know about me or Miller Ingenuity from that uh, site. Perfect. Perfect. Folks, we've been listening, uh, obviously, to Stephen Blue. Um, and the idea here of, and, and I want to come back to this, because uh, we wrap this thing up here. Why should we exist tomorrow? Yeah, I think that is a relevant question, because it does speak to relevance. And I don't mean to be you know, facile around that or, or flippant. But if you're not relevant, um, you're not going to have people uh, engaged emotionally with what it is that you're doing, either as an employee or as a customer. And keeping your eye on the ball doesn't mean keeping the eye on the ball where it is today. Right. Uh, you know, euphemistically, uh, Wayne Gretzky, you know, go to where the yep. puck's going to be. Why should we exist tomorrow? Um, I want to thank you, Steve. It's been a great conversation. And uh, my pleasure for learning more about what you're up to. Well, thank you so much. You've been listening to The Soul of Business with Blaine Bartlett. I am your host again, Blaine Bartlett. Uh, find out more about what I'm up to at blainebartlett.com. And uh, as always, find yourself a way to be a center of distribution, not a center of accumulation. You'll find that your life works a whole lot better that way. Take care.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.